0: LSE. Um, Tonight's Derendorf Forum uh, is sponsored by the U.S. Center and LSE Ideas, and it's really the first of a series of um, public lectures uh, and workshops uh, this year focusing on Europe uh, and its um, relations with the rest of the world. Um, It's a great pleasure for me to be able to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor Stephen Walt, uh, Steve and I have known each other since we were uh, both Ph.D. students, which I'm thinking maybe that's like a decade now or yeah. Yeah, right. So. Uh, Seven, eight years ago. In my, in my dreams, in my dreams. So um, Steve's, uh, Steve's CV is a long one. I'm not going to cite uh, chapter and verse here briefly. Um, I'll hit a couple of the high points. He trained at Stanford. And UC Berkeley, he's held teaching post uh, at Princeton, I think his first position at Princeton, then to the University of Chicago, now at Harvard University where he's the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs. Uh, Steve is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a founding and longtime co-editor of uh, a really highly regarded Cornell Uni- University Press series on international uh, security and a contributing editor at foreignpolicy.com where he's been blogging religiously since 2009. Uh, He's the author of of a number several well-known books uh, and dozens of articles on international politics and American foreign policy. Most international relations scholars, I think, know Steve best for his work on alliance politics. Um, Many in the policy world, uh, I think, know him best for his work on U.S. foreign policy uh, in the Middle East. Um, Indeed, I think one of the things that's always distinguished um, Steve in the American Academy, and especially in uh, political science... Uh, is his really deep commitment uh, to public engagement, uh, to using his scholarly training and work to speak to pressing public issues. And so it's not surprising that he decided to weigh in on the growing debate about Europe's future, or as Steve puts it, whether it has one. Um, So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Steve just for those of you on Twitter, I have my marching orders here. The suggested hashtag for tonight is hashtag LSE um, Please put your phones on silent if you haven't already done that so that you don't disrupt the event. It's being recorded and it only is preserved for posterity if we don't screw it up along the way, so with phone calls and so forth. Um, at the end of the lecture, as usual, what we'll do is leave time for uh, questions from the audience. I'll do my very best to get as many questions in as, we, uh, as, as time permits. Um, so with that, please join me in welcoming uh, Steve Walton, giving him that uh, very famous LSE welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to participate in a Darndorf Forum, and I want to thank uh, Peter Trubowitz for the invitation and for telling you all those misleading lies uh, beforehand. Uh, and, of course, I want to thank you all for coming. It's really a, a very gratifying turnout. Uh, I feel like I have to begin with a certain disclaimer uh, regarding my qualifications to speak on the topic of Europe's future. First of all, I'm an American, not European, and as a general rule, I think Americans spend too much time pretending that we know more about what's happening in other parts of the world (laughs) and telling other countries either what they're going to do or what they should do. Second, I'm not really an expert on European politics, as anyone familiar with my CV would know. I've written about transatlantic relations, I've written about NATO, I've written about certain aspects of European international politics. But I don't really specialize in Europe. I couldn't tell you the names of every prime minister or even which parties are governing in each European capital, nor am I an expert on the European Union as an institution although I'm gonna say a lot about it today in fact whenever I lecture about the EU I have to dig out my lecture notes and remind myself okay what is the European Council and how does that differ from the Council of Europe and all those other things I have trouble remembering who's in the European Union who's in the eurozone and of course which countries aren't so I approach the whole topic tonight with a certain degree of humility, you are therefore welcome to listen to everything I'm about to say with a great deal of skepticism. (laughs) But since I'm here, I might as well proceed, especially since you're all here. So the title today, Does Europe Have a Future?, and of course the answer to that is yes. Europe will continue to exist as a set of political institutions, as a set of countries with a shared but not identical history as a geographic designation, and perhaps as even an ever closer union. The real question is, what sort of future does Europe have in store for it? And there the answer is not so obvious. It's obviously a tumultuous period for the nations of Europe. These challenges also have some implications for the United States. After all, the European Union is a key trading partner. It's home to more than 500 million people. Most of Europe is tied to America through NATO and many other connections. So if Europe is doing well, that's good for the United States. And if Europe's in trouble, that's going to complicate matters for Washington. Unfortunately, it is hard to be optimistic about Europe's long-term prospects. Although the European Union, in particular, has been a positive force in world politics for many years, it now suffers from growing structural tensions and a series of self-inflicted wounds. Its members may overcome these challenges, continue to build that ever-closer union, but I think that outcome is unlikely. I think instead it is more likely to face repeated crises, growing internal divisions, and one cannot rule out the possibility of a gradual unraveling. This situation is not good news for either Europe or for that matter the United States. It will make Europe a less important force in the world and a less valuable partner. It will to some degree increase the number of problems the United States has to worry about. Now to explain why I reach that somewhat depressing conclusion I'm going to first talk about Europe's past achievements over the last few decades and then discuss the various sources of strain that I see before it today and I'll close by outlining three possible futures and explain why I think the Union's best days are behind it. Uh, Europe after World War II is in many ways a remarkable set of political achievements. In the aftermath of the most destructive war in history, after centuries of recurring conflict, a generation of European leaders had the imagination and determination to conceive and create a new order based on economic integration, open borders, the partial surrender of sovereignty to a new supranational organization. The original European coal and steel community evolved to be the European common market, expanded to include a host of new entrants, then deepened to become the European Union, and finally create a common currency for some of its members. This achievement should not be underestimated. For much of the past half century, it, this collective effort encouraged economic growth, gave Europe a more coherent voice in international economic affairs, reduced the danger of great power competition in Europe itself. It was also an influential model for other states, especially to the East. Indeed, the desire for EU membership encouraged those states to adopt critical democratic reforms after the breakup of the Soviet Empire and dampened the potential for trouble in those, uh, in those countries during the rather delicate transition period. In particular, those successes, and again we shouldn't slight them, led many Europeans to see Europe now as a potential superpower in its own right, but a different sort of superpower, one based on civilian power, on norms, on institutions, on legal principles, as an alternative to let's say the hard predominantly military power represented by the United States. One could argue in fact that after 1992 both sides of the Atlantic succumbed to a certain degree of hubris, Americans decided we could pretty much run the entire world and European leaders decided their own model was nearly perfect and could be replicated in the rest of Europe and deepened throughout the continent without too much trouble. That led them to take a series of fateful steps that unwittingly may have put the entire enterprise in some jeopardy. So let me talk now about what those sources of strain might be. I think now there are five fundamental challenges facing Europe. Some of these are problems of its own creation, some of them reflect broader changes in the world at large, and none will be easy to overcome. First problem is overexpansion. The EU has grown beyond its capacity to be governed effectively. What began as a limited arrangement among six countries to coordinate the production and marketing of coal and steel has become an elaborate supranational organization with 28 members whose affairs are partially governed by, and you know the list, European Commission, Council of Europe, European Parliament, the European Court of Justice and its elected president, the European Union, a host of subsidiary agencies that no one can fully keep track of. At the same time, of course, each member state still retains a separate national government with authority over health, police, fiscal policy, defense, and foreign policy. Today, Europe's governance arrangements make America's complex federal system look simple by comparison. More importantly, as the EU has grown, its membership has become increasingly heterogeneous in terms of population, economic size, per capita income, and to some degree cultural background. At roughly two trillion Germany's GDP is 300 times larger than Malta's. Luxembourg's per capita income is eight times larger than Latvia's, five times larger than Greece the geographic size, population, natural resources of the EU's member states all vary significantly as do their cultures, religious affiliations, and national histories. Now it's worth noting that this heterogeneity is a key reason why the EU's newest members actually wanted to join and why the original members encouraged their aspirations. In essence, both parties wanted the new member states, primarily in East and Southeastern Europe, to become more like the others. And that's, of course, what the new entrants wanted to be. But there was one key difference here. In Western Europe, the European Union and, in a sense, much of the post-war period was all about trying to either suppress or transcend the nationalism that had caused trouble in the past for the new entrance into the European Union. In a sense, the post-Cold War period was about the reassertion of national identity and national independence outside the Warsaw Pact. In some respects, they brought two different historical experiences to common membership in this institution. Convergence has therefore been slow and incomplete but the EU's governing institutions must now try to accommodate and reconcile a much broader array of interests, traditions, and historical experiences. The inevitable result is that the EU has much more difficulty reaching consensus on critical issues and it's much more difficult to resolve problems in a timely manner. As the EU has grown, it has just become more cumbersome, more divided, and less effective. It's also become less popular. According to the Pew Research Center, more than 70% of EU citizens report, quote, their voices do not count in EU decision-making. Nearly two-thirds believe that the European Union does not understand the needs of its own citizens. That's one problem. second problem is the disappearance of the Soviet Union. This was a good thing, but it removed one of the motivations for European uh, unity. Although both scholars and journalists often portray the EU as a purely economic project. Security concerns were a key part of its rationale from the beginning. As Sebastian Rosado argues in his book Europe United, European leaders in the 1950s believed that only a continental scale economy could, uh, pr- could possess the wherewithal to counter the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact. And economic integration was also seen as necessary to prevent political rivalries from undermining the Western effort to contain the spread of communism. Together with NATO therefore European economic integration was an important part of the broader Western effort to contain Soviet expansion or at least the concerns about Soviet expansion. Now that rationale I think faded in terms of the EU as NATO became stronger it disappeared entirely when the Soviet Union disappeared. The absence of a clear external threat allowed Europe's leaders to focus more on individual national concerns and devote less political capital to preserving the broader European project. So the post-Cold War period begins with this burst of pro-union energy signified by Maastricht, the creation of the Euro, but enthusiasm and consensus quickly waned. The campaign to create a constitution for Europe failed and so did the commitment to build a common foreign and security policy EU members have said repeatedly that they were going to take this particular step and have also said they would build military and diplomatic capacity to go along with it but in fact they've never really done so to take just one example the budget for the European External Action Service in essence the EU's foreign ministry is about half that of the UK Ministry of Foreign Affairs half that of the French Quai d'Orsay, half that of the German Auswärtiges Amt. Money is not everything, but there's a reason hardly anybody pays much attention to the all-European foreign policy arm. And today, the somewhat incoherent and inconsistent European response to events in Ukraine or the current refugee crisis merely underscores the lack of consensus among the European member states so Europe is not a unified decision-maker. It remains a community of separate nation-states. And big decisions on big issues get made not by Brussels, but by bargaining among national leaders in a uh, manner familiar to any student of international politics. Problem number three, the euro crisis. With hindsight, I think it's clear that the decision to create the euro was a fateful mistake as skeptics across the political spectrum warned at the time. European leaders chose to create a common currency for political rather than economic reasons. They sought to give new momentum to the goal of unity, to bind a reunified Germany more firmly within European institutions, and to put Europe, so they thought, on a more equal footing with the United States. But as the critics noted at the time, they didn't have the political and institutional mechanisms to make a currency zone work. Instead, the Euro's proponents simply assumed the Eurozone would abide by agreed-upon fiscal guidelines and never allow themselves to get in serious financial trouble. As Joseph Joffe, the editor of Desite, noted back in 1997, the Euro tied the disparate national economies together like cars on a locomotive and assume they would all run at the same speed and on the same track forever. The Euro's architects further assumed that if those assumptions proved to be too optimistic, which is of course what happened, then a future crisis would force them to create the political and economic institutions they needed. Common banking regulations, shared fiscal policy, a strong central bank, greater capacity to transfer resources from wealthy economies to poorer ones. This is a bit like someone trying to swim the English Channel without training for it, without preparing for it, and assuming that if they get tired and start to drown halfway across a boat will magically appear and they can row the rest of the way. The 2008 financial crisis exposed this folly and the EU has been preoccupied with trying to contain the damage ever since worth remembering seven years have passed since the crisis hit. Top government officials, central bankers, are still devoting countless hours to trying to save the common currency. They have made some very tentative steps to create slightly stronger economic institutions, but the EU is still light years away from having the political uh, mechanisms necessary to sustain a genuine currency union. And if the latest bailout of Greece fails, and I would put the odds sort of 50-50, Europe will again face another moment of truth. If Greece eventually exits, it will demonstrate that membership is not irreversible, and so new doubts about the Euro's prospects. Now, people have focused a lot of attention on the economic costs of the Euro crisis, but the political costs are also substantial. Every hour Europe's leaders have spent trying to dig themselves out of that mess is an hour they could not devote to thinking about China's rise and its implications, the problem of terrorism, the consequences of the Arab Spring, the civil war in Syria, Russia's policy in Ukraine, and any number of domestic issues. It's not that those things didn't get any attention, but much attention was taken away from them because they had to deal with the Euro crisis. And finally, the euro crisis has sown significant divisions within the continent as debtors and creditors increasingly regard each other with a level of resentment and hostility not seen in Europe for many years. This is not what the euro's creators had in mind when they took that fateful step in the 1990s. Now, all of these problems would be challenging enough if Europe were an island of stability surrounded by tranquil neighbors. But, alas, and as you all know, Europe is now being buffeted by instability on its frontiers. State failures in Libya, Syria, Yemen, and parts of Africa have produced a growing flood of refugees seeking to enter the EU from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Eritrea, Nigeria, Sub-Saharan Africa, Kosovo, and Pakistan. There were 435,000 asylum applications in 2013. 626,000 in 2014. They're going to exceed 800,000 this year. There's no end in sight here. And the result, of course, have been new fault lines within Europe itself. Some states, especially Germany, responded generously at first, but have pulled back in response to popular pressure. Others, such as Hungary, were opposed or said they only wanted to admit Christians, not exactly a Christian gesture. <laughs> the EU as a whole has been unable to fashion a unified consensus policy with each state mostly trying to shift the burden onto others. The most ironic statement, by the way, if you followed Hungary's policy on this, the most ironic statement was a statement by the Hungarian foreign minister complaining about Croatia. Quote, instead of honestly making provision for the immigrants, and sent them straight to Hungary. What kind of European solidarity is that? And, of course, when they finally did reach a tentative agreement on what to do about this, they couldn't reach it by consensus, which has been the EU's practice. It had to be essentially imposed on some Eastern European states. This also uh, jeopardizes the Schengen agreement, which allows open travel within much of the EU, which has been one of its proudest achievements and certainly a great symbol of European unity. And perhaps most important of all, concerns about continued refugee flows is likely to strengthen Euroskeptic right-wing parties throughout the continent and possibly elsewhere uh, in the years to come, one can even imagine this helping pave the way for a victory, say, of Le Pen and the National Front in France with very far-reaching implications as well. Just to step back for a minute, this is a little bit puzzling. I mean, Europe has over 500 million people, so a few million immigrants and migrants from outside Europe is not, in fact, going to tip the demographic balance in some fundamental way. In fact, a case could be made that Europe needs immigration to address its long-term demographic challenges and aging population overall. But as Martin Wolf pointed out in the Financial Times yesterday, it would take much larger migration than we're imagining now to truly solve the demographic challenge. But at another level, it's actually not that surprising. In the aftermath of September 11th, the Madrid and London bombings, the mass murder of dozens of teenagers by a right-wing nationalist fanatic in Oslo, the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, European societies are increasingly sensitive about the entire issue of assimilating other populations and its long-term impact on European identity. Um, I might add here, by the way, although the United States continues to take in more migrants than any other country in the world, President Obama hasn't exactly leapt to open America's borders to the unfortunate individuals fleeing from Syria and close-by countries either. My broader point simply is that trouble nearby is now having a direct impact on European politics and neither the individual member states or the broader EU have come up with an effective response. Of course, I think we see a similar pattern with respect to the conflict over Ukraine, and I would just make two points here. First, the crisis occurred in part, not entirely, but in part, because European elites based their policy towards Ukraine on a naively liberal view of international relations and completely forgot the insights of realism. To be specific, they thought the accession agreement with Ukraine was a purely benevolent act that would aid reform, reduce corruption, benefit the Ukrainian people, extend the liberal benefits of trade and investment, and help integrate Ukraine more firmly into Europe. They were probably right. But what they forgot was that great powers are almost always very sensitive to political conditions on their borders. Just look at how the mighty United States reacts to anything going on in Latin America and they ignored Russian warnings about trying to bring Ukraine into closer alignment with the West. The point is not what the Europeans intended, which I think was benevolent. The point was how that act was likely to be interpreted in Russia. Since then, of course, the EU has had great difficulty putting together an effective response, save for some economic sanctions. The result, of course, has been a serious decline in the relationship with Russia and, most importantly, a disaster for the Ukrainian people. It's also worth noting there's not enormous consensus within Europe on what to do about it. For example, 7 out of 10 polls will say that Russia is now a major threat. Only 4 out of 10 Germans agree with that assessment. In France, Germany, and Italy, more than 50% of the public now believes that NATO should not use force to defend any NATO members that border on Russia. Again, not exactly the message you want to hear if you're Estonian. (laughs) This brings me to the final challenge Europe now faces. The elites who created and built the European Union hoped that it would transcend existing national loyalties and that its citizens would eventually identify as Europeans first and as Germans, Danes, Italians, Belgians, Spaniards, etc. second. National identities would not disappear, but they would gradually fade or at least be subordinated to this broader project of ever greater union. Nationalism would matter when it was time for the World Cup, but not most of the time. This transformation of loyalties has not occurred. If anything, public attitudes may be headed the other way. As I've already mentioned, the Euro crisis has exacerbated national tensions. European leaders have consistently emphasized their individual national interests over the broader goal of European unity, even as they are trying to strengthen uh, various institutions. The United Kingdom may vote to leave the EU in the future, I personally don't think that's likely to happen but one cannot rule it out. Resurgent nationalism could eventually lead Scotland to exit the United Kingdom. Powerful nationalist sentiments continue to simmer in Catalonia and several other regions and the current refugee crisis could easily uh, make this problem worse at least in the short term. Economic hardship Concerns about immigration have, as I've already mentioned, also fueled a resurgence of more extreme right-wing movements in many European states. And the key to remember here is that these movements are hostile to the core principles on which the EU is built, and their popularity does raise some further doubts about Europe's long-term future. It's hard to believe that Europe could absorb several million people from the Muslim world or from Africa without reinforcing the xenophobia that these parties represent. Um, Now I'm not, again, I've suggested this shouldn't be as big an issue as it is given that Europe's population is still quite large but politics is often not that rational and I want to make it clear I'm not saying that politics is any more rational in the United States, after all Donald Trump is leading the GOP (laughs) polls. One last thing we have to add to this, and I've already alluded to it, and that's Europe's unfavorable demography. Its population is declining, its median age is rising, and this means you have a recipe for continued economic stagnation, potential popular discontent, and although I don't really know what the implications of this are, I think it is significant that in particularly the southern uh, countries, you increasingly have a generation of young people who have basically never had full-time employment when you have unemployment rates uh, over 25% and youth unemployment much higher than that, you're now starting to see the emergence of a generation that do not have the same professional trajectories that their parents have had. And I have trouble believing that that's not going to ultimately have significant and not positive effects on politics there, although I can't trace exactly what those effects might be. So what lies ahead? Well, if Europe does have a future, and it does, what's it going to look like? I can imagine at least three possibilities. Let me start with the optimistic scenario. Europe's current leaders or their successors could follow in their predecessors' footsteps, find new ways to overcome the various challenges I've just talked about. Support for European integration has waxed and waned over time, but previous European politicians eventually chose to move forward rather than let the grand experiment languish or collapse. So in theory, creative and determined leadership could save the euro with or without Greece, build the institutions to support a common currency, integrate immigrant and refugee populations more effectively, and adopt reforms designed to trigger more vigorous economic growth across the continent. Concerns about Russian intentions might even be a rationale for unity as well. In its most ambitious form, we're really optimistic, one could even imagine Europeans coming to understand that the world is still dangerous, that outside events can affect them directly, and that they need to stop depending on Uncle Sam to run the world while they sit comfortably in Europe. In other words, Europe could decide that the solution to these various problems is in fact more Europe and make that a reality instead of just a convenient catchphrase. Unfortunately this optimistic scenario of a sort of reinvigorated European project is unlikely to happen. There are no European leaders today with the vision or the stature of a Konrad Adenauer, a Charles de Gaulle, a Jacques Delors or dare I even say it, a Margaret Thatcher, although she was not a great enthusiast for Europe. European politics now, European publics are more likely to reward politicians who secure better terms for their individual countries rather than those who sacrifice narrow national interests on behalf of an ever closer union. Just look at what Prime Minister Cameron is attempting to do. The EU's elaborate governance structures would make any serious reform effort a long and torturous process which means that a successful resurgence is likely to take years to design and then years to implement. No quick rescue in this scenario. Option two, the second option is probably the most likely, the status quo. Instead of a new push for an ever greater union, the EU could just muddle through. The member states will reluctantly do what they can to fix Greece or contain the fallout if Greece eventually has to leave. They'll sign the transatlantic trade and investment partnership with the United States. At the same time, they'll pursue closer economic ties and market opportunities with China. If all goes well, the European Union will stay in business. Its current liabilities will remain intact. And over time, Europe's relevance in world affairs, its global influence will continue to decline, especially once the United States completes its so-called pivot to Asia. But there's a third possibility. This experiment could begin to unravel in more far-reaching ways. A Greek exit from the Eurozone will create new doubts about the Euro's future. More member states may begin to question the benefits of membership. A few, Greece, possibly Hungary, might even draw closer to Moscow over time. Nationalist resentments could fester and deepen Authoritarian or highly nationalist leaders could come to power uh, somewhere. So the whole fabric of the European experiment could start to be challenged in much more fundamental ways. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the EU then collapses quickly. Some states might continue to use the euro. The common market could remain intact as well, even if the authority and legitimacy of other European institutions began to fray. My point is that if the European Union begins to unravel in more significant ways, it's just impossible to forecast how far or how fast that process might go. The idea, though, of a two-speed Europe, which was widely derided when first proposed, might be the best one could hope for, a sort of core Europe that subscribes to more or less the current set of principles, and then a periphery around it that does some things along with the rest of Europe, but is on its own otherwise. I want to emphasize one final point here. I am neither predicting nor hoping for this outcome. Neither muddling through nor a gradual erosion would be good for Europe in my view, and certainly not good for the United States. Slow economic growth in Europe means slower growth for us. A divided and poorer Europe will be less helpful when the United States tries to deal with a rising China, a turbulent Middle East, or instability elsewhere. Problems within Europe also reduce the time and attention that American leaders can pay to other problems. to To sum all this up and then I would love to hear your reactions. Europe's history since the end of the Second World War is a remarkable success story, one where enlightened leaders rebuilt a continent, ended centuries of relentless competition, and eventually liberated the other half of the continent. But like a mutual fund, past success is no guarantee of future performance. Europe has faced and overcome enormous challenges in the past, but in many respects, the challenges it faces today are more difficult and more likely, or likely to be more intractable. In short, the answer to my question is yes, Europe does have a future, but it is not an especially bright one. And in closing, I will only say that I hope I'm wrong. Thank you.
0: Steve, thanks Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to resist the temptation to uh, ask the first question because we've got a full house. There's a lot of red meat there. I suspect there's going to be a lot of questions. So um, please raise your hands when the mic comes to you. If you just do us a favor and just quickly identify yourself and try to keep the questions short. All right to the point. All right, you had your hand up first, so we'll go right there. Okay. We'll start there. And what, uh you happy if I bundle a few questions?
2: Yeah, sure. Okay. Hi there. Um, thank you very much. I'm Maxwell Vodi in the Master of International Relations here. I sort of, if you could elaborate more on sort of China's co- coming role in, the, in Europe and what sort of, how is that future going to play out? Because, I mean, just this year alone, we have the you kind know, of the terminus of the new Silk Road project ending up in Greece and the AIB playing these really interesting roles where you know, Europe isn't just the, sort of the source of all the luxury market that China's been really interested in, but something more. So I'm sort of really curious in your thoughts on that. Sure.
0: Other hands? Yeah, yeah. All guys? Um,
1: right there next to you. <clears throat>
0: uh,
1: in uh, European politics, we're seeing uh, the rise of f- far right-wing parties that seem to be very energetic and dynamic, while the traditional uh, center, center-left center parties seem to be rather boring and not really exciting anyone. Uh, why do you think this is the case, and what can be done to counteract that?
0: We'll take um, one more. All right, Matteo, write down... <laughs> Down here in the front, on uh, the balcony. There we go. Uh,
1: yes, hello. Thank you for your speech. Um, so I just had a question on what do you think the role that the U.S. will play in Europe um, will be like? Do you think that with the next administration, uh, will, will the U.S. continue to slowly continue pulling out? Or could there be uh, a, greater, a greater role for the U.S.? Since historically, even in European integration, it was quite significant. Thank you. Okay. Let's go ahead and respond to those. Um, With respect to the first question about the EU and China, some of this depends on what China's future trajectory turns out to be. And we still don't really know know, whether or not China will continue to grow and develop as it has uh, quite remarkably over the past 30 years, or if some of the stumbles we've seen in the last year or so are harbingers of bigger trouble down the road. But let's assume that China continues to do pretty well. Uh, becomes uh, wealthier, higher per capita income, more militarily capable, et cetera. Um, What the United States will do, at least in the short to medium term, is try and counter that in various ways, and that's what the whole sort of rebalancing to Asia is all about. Uh, The United States will try to maintain its security presence in Asia and probably devote more time and effort to that. So then the interesting question comes, well, what happens to Europe? Where is Europe in all of this? And I've been arguing for a while now that Europe has almost no role to play in an American effort to counterbalance China in Asia. It's not in Europe's interest to do that. Europe has no vital stake in the geopolitical balance in Asia. And the European response will be to uh, invite trading missions to come from Beijing and talk about all sorts of things, including, say, militarily relevant technology. So if the United States comes to its European allies and says, we don't want you to sell anything with military consequences to Beijing, I believe the French, German, British, et cetera answer will be, what are you talking about? They're not a threat to us. They're way over there on the other side of the world, and we're not going to be part of your efforts to counter them not because the Europeans will be hostile to America, it's just not in their interest to participate in that particular project. So again, if China continues to rise, I believe Europe will try to have a good relationship with China and will not want to be an active participant in any U.S.-led effort, which will primarily involve um, Asian countries. That, of course, I'm going to jump to the third question, and I'll come back to the second one. The question, what do I see as the future role in Europe, Again, I've been saying this for probably long enough now that it sounds like a broken record, but I think that the incredibly close, intimate partnership between the United States and Europe really begins in 1945, um, uh, has been sort of slowly eroding over time. The American military presence here has declined for all the obvious reasons. The amount of time or attention that American politicians pay to Europe has gone down. We've been preoccupied with the Middle East for the last 10 to 15 years and over the next 10 to 15 will be still I think engaged by Middle East issues but also by uh, by issues in Asia. Moreover, despite the kerfluffle over Ukraine, sorry probably an inappropriate word, it's serious business, but despite the issue over Ukraine, I don't believe most Americans regard Russia as an imminent geopolitical threat. Russia is a declining power and Europe, not counting the United States, but Europe spends about four times more each year than Russia does on its military spending. So if Europe together cannot come up with the wherewithal to protect itself against some possible resurgent Russian threat, right, Europe is not trying very hard. Right? <laughs> All right. So my view on this one is is barring some really uh, r- dramatic shift in uh, the security situation in Europe, the American role here is going to continue to decline. We will remain economically engaged. We're connected uh, culturally and in a variety of other ways. But as security partners, it's just not going to be all that significant. And just one final point, if all of these various out of area activities that the United States and some of its NATO partners have been involved in, like Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya, had worked out really well, then you might have argued that NATO had sort of reinvented a new set of missions for itself. But We saw how those things, various, uh, how they worked out, and I don't think that that's going to be a sort of compelling uh, mission going forward. And then finally, uh, why are far-right parties uh, emerging uh, more you know, uh, prominently? Um, I'm not quite sure, to be perfectly honest. The same thing, to some degree, is happening in the United States. I mean... Donald Trump is hard to categorize, but he's, uh, he's evidence of a kind of anti-politics, a politics of slogans, a politics of appealing to certain sort of base instincts. And I think both in Europe and in the United States and possibly in some other democracies, there is this sense that the existing set of institutions are not producing people who are either effective or particularly admirable. Right. And that what what good populist xenophobes are good at is coming up with uh, with glib solutions, playing upon people's resentments, playing upon people's fears. And for us, in the aftermath of two uh, failed wars, in the aftermath of a financial crisis, it's not surprising that some in the United States sort of look for quick and easy solutions that appeal again, to sort of the desire for an easy answer. And I think much of the same thing is happening in Europe, given the problems Europe has faced over the last, uh, last few years. One final point here is the really interesting question is if any of these parties manages to gain political power in a consequential European state, in one of the major European states. Um, you know, in the past, most of these parties have never gotten really above 25%. Uh, in polls or in, in elections. And if, they, if you start seeing them getting into the 30s and 40s, taking power, being the leading member of a coalition, then that's a real sea change in European politics. I don't think it's really happened yet in a major European country, but it could.
0: Right. Uh, I've I got you on my list. Uh, let's come down here, right here.
2: Good evening. Uh, Philip Price. Uh, I'm a long-standing member of UACS. Um, I'm old enough to remember the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 68, and it's interesting comparing what has happened, what happened in, in, in Czechoslovakia vis-a-vis the current crisis in the Ukraine. And it's interesting comparing the it, second relaunch of Europe, which occurred in the aftermath in of the Hague summit of December 1969, when essentially there was a common message, really no more integration is such in terms of what had happened in the 50s, but to build in terms of intergovernmental structures. So you have an interesting, very interesting period uh, in the next uh, 15 years after the Hague Summit in terms of the development of European political cooperation. And, of course, with the ongoing um, running of the WEU and linkages between EPC and the WEU and the, and the original EEC structure. Um, do you regret the winding up of the Western European Union at the end of last century, um, in terms of it being treaty-based, a smaller membership, essentially Western uh, European-minded states, uh, the original core members, um, fitting nicely, assimilating nicely within the NATO structure, um, ticking there in the background, always ready uh, to meet and discuss crisis. um, And it fitted in well with the emerging intergovernmentalist thrust of, of the 1970s. Thank you. Hold on a second. We're going to take two
0: more. I, I haven't forgotten you over there. i got eyes on the side of my head. Um, in the back, right there, and then we'll come straight down here. Th-
2: thank you yeah. very much for the lecture. I have a question uh, from outside of Europe. Uh, from my country, in Asia, I think we saw EU as a good example for the regional integration and organization do you think that with all the problems and everything that happened in Europe right now, EU is still a good example for us to to look up to? Thank you.
0: And then down here. Mm-hmm.
2: Hello again, and <laughs> thank you again. Um, now,
1: while I... I'm a PhD student in the department. Um, while I agree with most of what you said, I think I have to challenge you a little bit on your second point uh, regarding the muddling through, if I may. Now, if I understand you correctly, you said that it's going to lead to European decline if the EU seeks on the one hand the partnership with the US but then also
2: orientates itself towards China. At the same time, however, you mentioned the the US pivot to China. Now isn't there a little bit of an inconsistency that you say the
1: US may turn towards China? However, you better be careful with that. And then secondly, um, on that specific notion, does it necessarily have to uh, lead to
2: decline, or couldn't we also look at this as a rather, you know, smart strategy as something, you know, worthwhile pursuing? Thank you.
0: Okay, Steve, so will okay. take those, and then... Um,
1: I, I don't look upon the demise of the the... West European Union. With regret, I, it's not an emotion I guess I would associate with that. Um, but let me—I mean, I think that what it really points to is the ambivalence that the United States has always had towards European Union in general we well, thought it was a good idea. We thought the idea of the common market was OK. Um, it made Europe more difficult to deal with in trade negotiations, but it was basically fine. But in terms of security politics, the United States was, again, always kind of not sure. If Europe got its act together completely, that might be good because then we could come home and not have to defend them anymore, not have to help defend them. But on the other hand, if they got their act together, they wouldn't have to listen to Washington anymore and wouldn't have to take orders. And ultimately I think American policy was was more driven by the latter concern that we wanted a a compliant set of allies who at the end of the day would do what they were told. I'm not defending that I'm just describing the way that NATO ultimately worked. So every time Europeans, um, whether it was you know the St. Malo agreement, every time there was even a step in the direction of independent European foreign and security policy, the Americans generally said, yes, but it's got to be done within the NATO context because, remember, we kind of run NATO, right? And there's a point if the United States is becoming less engaged or less committed or just paying less attention to Europe where I think Europeans will have to decide if they're going to get serious about taking over. I personally think that would be a good thing for Europe and a good thing for the United States as well. So just to take one example, it seems to me it would be time for the supreme allied commander in Europe, a role traditionally held by an American, in fact, I think always held by an American, why not have a European a supreme allied commander in Europe? The United States doesn't have to leave the alliance. And by the way, one of the interesting consequences of that was that you might see European countries starting to compete for who got to be supreme allied commander. And one of the ways you could credibly... Uh, make a case for it was, of course, by actually having some military capabilities that could do something. Um, so, you know, I think this is maybe a moment where the United States has to to abandon its previous ambivalence and be more welcoming of of greater European unity. There, um, should the European Union be an example uh, for countries in Asia? Um, in some ways, yes, um, but there's nothing in Asia that's remotely like the European Union right now. And ASEAN has some of the features of that and has been a good consultative institution to coordinate diplomatic activity within its members, but it's nothing like the uh, either the centralized bureaucracy, the unified market, uh, and all of the other things that make up the European Union. So it's a nice direction to aspire to, uh, but ASEAN sort of has a long way to go before Uh, They get there, uh, and none of the other Asian countries, I think, are close to establishing uh, anything like a relationship like that. And if it started to emerge, right, then there's the question of would China be a member or not. And if China was not a member, um, China would, I suspect, do everything it could to prevent something like that from emerging uh, in an area that they, I think, would like to have as something of a, a sphere of influence over the longer term. Um, and then, finally, was I contradictory about uh, no the no i don 't think so um, in the following sense, uh, the United States is going to focus more attention on Asia, but not by embracing china it 's mostly driven by the concerns about the rise of chinese power and what that means long term for the American position in europe so it 's although Uh, Both the United States and China are going to great lengths to try and keep this rivalry within manageable boundaries. I don't think that's going to be easy to do, and at its core is each side's concerns about the other's long-term position and long-term intentions. The European position towards China is very different. They're not particularly concerned about China becoming more powerful, more influential in the world or whatever. China is an economic opportunity, so... Europe paying more attention to China and the United States paying more attention to China are being driven by different motives, and yes, it's very much in Europe's interest to do so. If European industries can make money uh, investing and selling to China, by all means they should, and they undoubtedly will try.
0: Uh, I'm going to go up there. Uh, So it's down here, second row to the end. Uh, No, no, further down here, yeah. He's just waited so patiently. Um, and then there was a hand. There's a hand down here. A oh, uh, lot of hands. Okay. Um, and then we'll come down here. because he's Go
2: ahead. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I just wonder if, looking at identity, the way uh, many post-colonial countries in North and South America invented their own identities, their own nationhoods, their sense of nationhoods, Australia also did. And Is there anything that European institutions could do given the, the polls you were saying of people who are disenchanted are there policy things in education or common holidays or some sort of way of fostering uh, identity I ask that as a political scientist as, rather than as a European Ok,
3: and down here uh, uh, My question is uh, uh, about uh, people in charge to, uh, You
0: guys should introduce yourselves first no. no.
3: I'm I'm a, I'm, an Ita- a I'm an yeah. Italian that lives in, in London and
1: I'm that's okay the intelligence agencies already know who you are
3: <laughs> No I've been a long time in London and uh, <laughs> they
1: they know that too
3: no, the point is that uh, I'm always watching with s- some concern of the Italian government, and.
0: Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we really
1: threw him off it's dangerous.
0: So,
3: so my, my point my point is that uh, you talk about quality of the people in charge of a government in Europe, of a different country. Uh, uh, we have been very i mean me and other friends of mine that lives in London. we have been very happy when there was Mario Monti in charge of the Italian government um, and now, in the last uh, two years, we are a bit disappointed about the the policymaker in Italy. So my point is that uh, uh, in terms to have a, a future in Europe it's very important who leads the government of a different country in europe so uh, you you said something about the the new, um, the new generation of uh, policy maker, the new prime minister in Europe that uh, probably they are not uh, high-quality people in terms of skills or in terms of uh, forward-looking. So what do you think you, uh, about that?
0: And... Do uh, uh, you have your hand up? You do. There we go. I I, I got you the other one, but... I'm, We'll go up there first. Right. Next round, I'll come down here. Thank
2: thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm Lisa. I'm doing a master's in international relations at LSE. Um, I was wondering, you quickly mentioned during your talk that you find the idea of the UK leaving uh, the European Union highly unlikely uh, through a referendum or any other kind. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that statement, uh, explaining how you reached that conclusion. Thank you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Uh, on, as to the first question, what could be done to foster, I gather you meant a sort of a greater sense of European identity, common uh, sense. I mean, some, some of that has happened, uh, especially, I think, at the, at the elite level. Uh, certainly, uh, the Schengen... Uh, principles. The Schengen Agreement uh, played a role in that. The fact that labor migration is easier in a variety of ways, as as uh, is, I'm struck every time I come to London now or anywhere else in, in Europe. It's really remarkable how you, no matter where you are, you run into people from uh, elsewhere in Europe, which was not the case the first time I, I came here back in the 19, uh, 1970s. Um, I also am a little bit leery of answering the question because this does fall into the heading of sort of American trying to tell Europeans how they can construct a post national identity for themselves and you know boy we ought to be humble about our ability to do social engineering anywhere at this point in in time (laughs) having said that I do think it's it's a very hard thing to do and certainly to do predictably right because Europe has some well-formed national identities already. It's a little bit different than trying to construct a national identity in Australia when you take a bunch of people, you throw them on a totally different continent and you sort of leave them alone for a while and they have to come up with something. That's very different when it's countries and peoples that have a long history, long history of independent national identity Nationalism is a very powerful and very enduring force, and the idea that a bunch of people in Brussels or anywhere else can sit there and say, oh, all right, you know, if we just craft this particular guide to how to write a textbook, we can turn Belgians into Norwegians, and we can turn Norwegians into Greeks. And and I just, it's not going to be very easy to do and probably won't work, as we've seen with the persistence of nationalism in Europe. Uh, My colleague and friend Stanley Hoffman, who passed away uh, a few weeks ago, um, you know, wrote this absolutely classic article uh, back in I think 1965 or 66, Obstinate or Obsolete? the fate of the nation state in Western Europe. And it was a reflection on the European community and European integration. And he was basically saying the nation state is not going to go away because nationalism is a very powerful force. It's a quite a powerful and I think prophetic argument. So I, I don't have a a good answer for how you could do that. Um, quality of leaders. Uh, Italy has given us some interesting examples. Uh, but <laughs> But, but Italy is not alone in that regard. You didn't corner the market on interesting politicians. Um, I think the more fundamental question is actually what European publics, because these are all democracies, are electing their leaders to do. And if I, if I wanted to draw a, a probably stark and oversimple contrast, I would say that in the 1950s and 1960s, the shadow of the Second World War was still lying very heavily across sort of the European political agenda. How could we have done this? How could we have let this happen? And how are we going to make sure this never happens again? And so while all of the European leaders that I mentioned, people like Delors, people like De Gaulle, people like Adenauer, were very nationalistic, De Gaulle in particular, there was this larger project that they, I think, at some level, were all deeply committed to. I don't think that's what European leaders are now being elected to do. They're being elected not to serve the European project, they're being elected to cut a deal for their own governments, for their own peoples. That's what they get rewarded for. Merkel gets rewarded if she's really tough on the Greeks. The Greek leader gets rewarded if he's seen as standing up to those atrocious Northern Europeans and all their legalistic rules about paying debts how unreasonable, uh, et cetera, right? Um, And so I don't see a mechanism by which you start getting leaders who want to devote a lot of political capital to trying to sell the larger European project. And Giscard de Stang was maybe the last one who really was behind that. And when the effort to get a constitution for Europe kind of went bust, and when the Euro experiment didn't work, I don't see European publics reaching out to try and select a bunch of leaders who will have a different agenda. I, you know, Again, I could be wrong, and you know, domestic politics, very hard to fathom and predict, so things could take a funny turn.
0: So let's take that hand back there, and then we'll come up to the fellow here. Does that say Amherst? Yes. Okay, we'll go to Amherst. So, a second. Um, yeah, start there. Thank
2: you. Good evening. My name is Sarah Mears. Oh, you're Hi. right. Uh,
1: uh, British exit. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. My, my, you my learned apology. all about
0: that at dinner last night. Yeah, so yeah. You're ready to go. Um, so
1: uh, again, I, I we'll that next. partly based on a little bit of the polling I have seen, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Partly, and this is like the worst form of intuitive social science. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually regard the United Kingdom as a fundamentally conservative country. Conservative with a small c, not conservative as in Tory, right? Right? Not interested in Burkean, if you will. Big changes, not so sure. All right. The English business community, I think, would be very concerned about leaving uh, the EU right now. And I think ultimately, you know, it'll be a little bit like, you know, the Scottish referendum people will talk a lot about it beforehand and they go into the voting booth and do I really want to try this big experiment of leaving I don't think so so in that sense I don't think it's it's gonna happen I, six months ago I would have said it's gonna be defeated that the idea of leaving will be defeated uh, relatively easily I do think the refugee crisis makes it a little narrower because that's mana from heaven for, you know, Farage. You can do all sorts of, you know, play all sorts of games with the fear that somehow England is going to be flooded with a bunch of desperate, needy foreigners ringing your doorbell and asking for things. Um, But I, in the end, I'll be very surprised if uh, Britain leaves the EU.
0: There you go. Thanks for thank patience. you very much, yeah.
2: and thank you for your presentation. It was very interesting. Um, you mentioned right-wing insurgency on both sides of the Atlantic, but not the left-wing insurgencies, and I'm interested to know whether you think that, what, they, what role you feel they have in the future of Europe, and whether, if it's any role at all, it would serve to focus American attention more <laughs> sharply than you've indicated is currently the case, or whether you discount them entirely.
1: Um, Thank you <coughs> you want to go right yeah, to no no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's take a few more.
0: Uh, down here. Okay.
2: Okay. Hi, um, I'm Alex. I'm doing a master's in IR. Um, I was wondering if in the future with the U.S. political pivot towards Asia, if there's a role to be played for economic diplomacy between the United States and Europe, um, would something
1: hypothetical like a provision inserted into TTIP for common residency and work rights between the United States and Europe have any potential for economic and political dynamism in both the United States and Europe. Just unpack that last bit. What do you mean by common? Sure. So if, as a part of TTIP, um, there were provision establishing common work and residency rights, sort of the UK relationship to Europe with Schengen having borders, but still common work and residency rights, would that have an impact for
2: uh, dynamism economically and politically?
0: There's a hand right up here, this guy in the green shirt. I think it's green, yeah.
2: Hi,
3: my name is Ruben. I'm a student at uh, King's College. And I was wondering, you mentioned um, the conflict in Russia historically with the Soviet Union and right now with you know Rus- uh, Russian aggression maybe in the Ukraine and um, that that is somehow a uniting force for Europe. And I was wondering how do you actually see that playing out now and if there's there's going to be some sort of further military military action that will come from that, and how that will play out with the European security issues. Okay.
1: Um, so I, I think uh, the likely what what happens if you know sort of left wing movements start emerging in in big way. Well, we've seen one in Greece. Uh, You could argue Syriza is a left-wing movement, um, which has turned out not to transform Greek politics really, and and um, and didn't get the original program that they were sort of elected to. Ultimately, they caved um, and accepted the various terms that were, by and large, dictated to them. Whether that works and whether or not we have to go through another round of this remains remains to be seen. Um, I. Those of you who live here will know more about this, but at least from the United States, it doesn't look like the stars are lining up for a big Labour Party win here in the United Kingdom. It could be a very interesting campaign, and Mr. Corbyn has already done some rather interesting things. His approach to question time is really kind of intriguing. Uh, and very modern Um, but I I, again I'll be I'll be surprised if he's the next prime minister and I'll be surprised if uh, Britain leaves the leaves the uh, EU I'll be even more surprised if anything that would count as a genuine left-wing movement uh, emerges in the United States Bernie Sanders will run Bernie Sanders will not be the nominee of the Democratic Party Um, and and no one to his left is going to even register on the political uh, political spectrum. I said a minute ago that you know England is a conservative country. America is a really conservative country, at least on the political spectrum. You know Barack Obama is about the most left-wing president I can remember, and he's not left-wing <laughs> <laughs> at all, <laughs> um, at, at all. So i It would have you know I think it would have really fundamental effects if you got a genuine left wing party, but my sense of almost all the old left wing parties in the in Europe are kind of gone or have moved towards the center or can 't command a particular following and i 'll confess i don 't fully understand this because you would think in the aftermath of the financial crisis that the ability to mobilize a fundamental challenge to for lack of a better term, let's call it sort of neoliberalism and, and more uh, market operations, was right there, was sitting there uh, to be mobilized, but it hasn't happened. Uh, and whether or not that reflects the sort of transformation of industry, the uh, assaults on labor unions, certainly in the United States to some degree, uh, elsewhere, I don't have enough knowledge to know. Um, but I, I don't. I think basically the the hypothetical you're presenting is not going to be tested, because we're not going to see the a left-wing insurgency I- emerge. Um, what about um, economic diplomacy and, you know, uh, adding something to TTIP that would, uh, you know, integrate the labor markets, basically, between North America and Europe? Uh, it would make some economic sense, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think that you know we're at a moment in the United States where we're also very sensitive about immigration issues, and it might be a good idea. But I can imagine a whole series of politicians who are already a little bit uncomfortable about just the trade agreement as a pure trade agreement. And is this more government regulation? And are we going to let European standards of doing stuff uh, dictate what American industries can do? It'll be a tough enough sell to get that. Uh, through Congress and adding something that then you mean we're going to let some Frenchmen come in here and take American jobs? <laughs> uh, um, I just think that would be a bridge too far, even if you could make a, a reasonable economic uh, argument for it. Um, by the way, you know one one of my colleagues, Dick Rosecrans, formerly of UCLA, uh, and he's been uh, at Harvard for the last few years, has been arguing for you know what he uh, thinks of as a sort of merger. Right That the United States, Canada, and Europe should kind of merge into a big confederation of of their own. he likes to use sort of corporate analogies, and that these are you know we have compatible product lines, we have a lot of the same corporate values we should just and size really matters in the world today and I keep telling him I think it 's a great idea that will never happen so um, and then finally. Uh, Would Russia's behavior, would this be a a uniting force? It may be a uniting force, but it hasn't really been uh, so far. Uh, There's been as much disagreement within Europe over how to respond to the Ukraine crisis. My own view, which could be mistaken, is that Russia would kind of like the Ukraine crisis to drop down in salience as well. Uh, I don't think they want to push things any further there. I think they have no desire to try and reabsorb Ukraine uh, because they know they couldn't run it uh, at this point. Uh, They would do whatever it takes to make sure that Ukraine is not pulled into the Western orbit. And I think they're willing to destroy Ukraine in order to prevent that from happening, but they're not going to want to take it over. But I think they would prefer not to do that. And we may just end up with what we've seen elsewhere in that Part of the world, namely a kind of frozen conflict that is not resolved uh, for some period of time, and my sense is that right now, at least, um, most European leaders are not eager to try and push this one further. It's been worth noting that Germany, in particular, although ha- they have emphasized, um, it, it, well, although the German government is actually very upset now with what Russia has done, and I think Merkel feels like you know she was misled by Putin that she had a relationship with him and that didn't uh, yield the, the right results. Nonetheless, Germany has been deeply opposed to any uh, idea of arming uh, the Ukraine, sending Western arms or American arms, something some American politicians uh, keep proposing, and has emphasized the need to find a diplomatic answer there, not a, a military one. So I don't think at this level of, of tension and conflict um, we're going to see, uh, see that as a uniting force. And you know, if um, if Putin solves the Syrian civil war, then what do we do with that? That was a joke.
0: So we've got we've we've got room for a few more questions here. We'll take one over here. Back up. Uh, The woman has a black top, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, We'll go over there next. Go ahead.
2: Hi, I'm an A-level student, um, and I want, we looked uh, briefly at Russian aggression. I was wondering if we could look at it from a different angle, um, particularly with r- authorizing military action against Islamic State um, this past week. Do you see extremism in the Middle East with the rise of um, things like Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, as acting as a catalyst to actually unify Russia and the European Union to a certain extent?
0: So We've got that question. We'll take one back there and then after that we'll come come down to the corner here and that'll be it for go ahead
2: hello my name's Fazana and I work at the LSE um, you co-authored an excellent book on US foreign policy and Israel's influence upon it and I was curious to know what you thought about Israel's influence on Europe's foreign policies
0: So we've got this fellow down here in the gray in the corner. And I'm such a soft touch, we're going to take a fourth right down here. Okay, This woman right here. We'll go there first.
3: And thank you. I'm doing Masters from History of International Relations. And what does really Washington want? Because um, in terms of UK goes to Europe and gaining their membership and then exercise its bigger part so that maybe UK and Europe, they can take care of these issues and that America can take care of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Asian stuff. No, we can't. (laughs) Okay, so I'm really wondering what does really Washington want in terms of foreign policies? Thank you.
0: Last question up
2: here. Thank you. Uh, My name is Adrian Rockstein. I'm a PhD student in international relations. my question is just to what extent the potential for the uk leaving the european union uh registers in washington and whether washington whether the us will actually try to do something about this whether they will quietly talk to european leaders you know do they care
1: Um, okay so first uh, Russia's recent activity in Syria I, this I'm still I'm out on thin ice here because I actually haven't even been able to read a newspaper in the time I've, I've been here so I kind of know what's what's happening um, there's certainly a concern with the rise of extremism but so far we haven't seen much of a unified response we don't even see a unified response among the states that are there as opposed to to others um, so You know, Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Iran none of them like ISIS but they don't really coordinate their activities very well to try and deal with it because they have other conflicting motives uh, as well Um, and that's I think true of other outside powers including us. Russia has had one great advantage in the whole Syrian uh, disaster and that's they had a very simple goal which was to try and preserve Assad um, and We had all sorts of crazy goals. We wanted to get rid of Assad, but we wanted to combat Islamic extremism. We wanted to promote moderate Syrians. We wanted to hold the thing together. We had a series of basically incompatible objectives. Oh, to keep Iran from having any influence anywhere in the region, etc. Things like that. And as a result, our policy uh, could never really reconcile all of the conflicting tendencies. Russia's was very clear. You don't have to like Russia's policy, that's a separate question, but it was very easy for them to sort of not worry about anything but what we need to do to try and prop up Assad uh, as much as possible. And what we're seeing now is I don't think an intervention so much against the Islamic State, although that's how they're trying to sell it, but rather an intervention against anyone who is opposing Assad and we'll see how that plays itself out. I mean whether they're actually successful uh, in doing that or not. Yes there is um, there is some basis for unity amongst a lot of governments against extremist movements. Most governments regardless of their character don't like freelance purveyors of violence right, for sort of all of the obvious reasons that states like to retain a monopoly on it. But that doesn't necessarily produce a lot of policy coordination because they frequently don't agree on which groups are the most dangerous or what it is that ought to be done about them. So I guess I don't see the emergence of, say, the Islamic State or even Al Qaeda as sufficient to produce a lot of political unity certainly between us and between Russia where we have some issues where we agree but others uh, others where we disagree. Um, I'll, I'll interpret the question about um, Israel uh, as, as following to what extent is there an Israel lobby in Europe and to what extent does Israel, I mean Israel has diplomatic relations with all of Europe and a close economic relationship with the European Union and there are domestic groups in European countries that operate in the political system to try and support a closer relationship, to try and oppose various efforts to, say, raise the occupation, uh, raise issues about human rights violations against uh, Palestinians. Um, More evident in France and the UK than in other parts of Europe, but it's different than the American situation because the political systems are different. Uh, One of the things we emphasized in our book, writing about the United States, was that interest groups are at the heart of how American politics works. They're enshrined in our constitution that citizens can form associations and interact in the political system in that way, and it's completely legitimate. So what groups like AIPAC and others are doing in the American context is completely above board. It's, It's the way the game is played and lots of other groups do it in foreign policy and lots of other groups do it in other aspects of political uh, life whether you like it or not it's the way our system works sometimes it produces pretty good outcomes in other cases it produces outcomes that I would disagree with like say gun control why we have a you know crazy policy on, on that particular issue so yes those groups operate and Israel of course tries to use them to advance its position as you would expect them to Uh, I don't think they have the same political clout in Europe as they do in the United States, but it's not that they have no impact whatsoever. And not surprisingly, that's the contest we're now seeing in some European countries over what the European Union's policy towards the Middle East and towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular is going to be. Um, let uh, Let me... answer the last two questions together. The first one was, what does Washington want? What a great question. Freud would have loved it. Um, and uh, and uh, what's the American reaction to the potential British exit? Um, I think with respect to what Washington wants, want, Washington would like uh, to not have to worry very much about Europe there's enough other problems in the world and I think you know as I said before we have a slightly ambivalent attitude towards European Union uh, towards European unity in general some of its good too much might be a problem um, but I think a British exit would be regarded as a destabilizing step that would cast some further doubt on European unity might create more centripetal forces within Europe, centrifugal forces within Europe. So my guess is that the American position that won't be loudly proclaimed, but the American position is going to be, no, this is not such a hot idea. It's obviously up to the UK to decide for itself, but we'd prefer it if it didn't happen. I don't think you'll see a lot of arm twisting. You know, uh, the Americans going to European governments and saying, you know, make some concessions to Cameron. Give him something he can take home. I don't think we're going to do very much of that, um, uh, if at all. But my suspicion, in terms of what Washington wants, is it would like Europe to remain intact, remain mostly unified, solve the Euro crisis, and then start growing economically so we can sell more stuff to you.
0: And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I've been running him like a dog for a day and a half, so we're going to wrap it up here. Please join me in thanking Steve. Thank
1: you. You're a great topic. Thank
0: you very much.